Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to your second theme talk. How are you feeling this morning? Good. Good. Well, after Winnie's deep and thought-provoking and meaningful talk, I'm feeling a little bit nervous. <laughs> but my son Arturo told me, come on, mama, it's no big deal. <laughs> Have fun. So that's what I'm going to do. So in Barack Obama's early speeches on his presidential campaign, he often described his arrival, and sorry, I don't, I'm not comparing myself to Barack Obama. Just <laughs> but he compared his arrival at a community hall uh, in the rain after an hour and a half drive on this long campaign trail where he was disappointed to find only 20 people. As he stood there, getting ready to give his speech, wet, tired, and uninspired, he heard a voice at the end of the hall going, fired up, and everybody in the hall said, ready to go, and he found this a bit weird. But it was the voice of a 60-year-old lady with a church hat on, she was very short, and she was a council member from Greenwood, North Carolina. And in this town, they had the habit of saying, fired up, ready to go. <laughs> now, you're not a room of wet, uninspired 20 people. <laughs> you're a full, intimidating, but happy Unitarian summer school room. So to get ready this morning, even if you're not feeling it, can we try this experiment of tricking the brain? Because what happened to Obama was he said, at first he was feeling a bit intimidated, and then he realized that he was feeling a little bit more fired up, and he was feeling a little bit ready to go. And he said to himself, a voice, a single voice, a single body can change the energy of a room. So can we try it? Yeah. Could you shout out, one of you shout, fired up, and then fired we all say, ready to go. Let's do it again. Fired up. Ready to go. One more time. Fired up. Ready to go. Thank you. Okay. Fire brings us a special kind of alertness. We light candles and chalices as forms of prayer, as offerings to our gods, but also to be reminded to come back from wherever our wandering minds has taken, have, our wandering minds have taken us. Candles call us back again and again to our heart center. And our chalice fires, lit and extinguished over and over, as Kate told us at the beginning of the summer school, um, have been calling us to gather together close so we can listen. For millennia, we built our human communities around fireplaces, which kept us warm, safe, and connected. In the light of the fire, we ate and told stories, and these stories made us one. Anna's going to light our chalice. So let us light this summer school chalice in memory of the fires we lit back in the beginning of the world. Let's give thanks for our coming together today for the opportunity to open our hearts and minds and bodies to the mystery that lies beyond our perception. Let us rejoice in the physical company of all around us, our friends and the strangers we haven't yet met. Take a moment to look around the room and let's celebrate our bodies, each at different stages of life, shaped by our individual experiences, adventures and suffering. May the work we do here help us bring love and life everywhere we go. May we radiate connection and help mend and heal the outer world wherever we can. May we do 
what kindles love in us. And may we, in Jack Gilbert's words, risk delight and have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. May it be so. So let's sing our first hymn, Gather the Spirit. And if you can stand as you are able, uh, 43 in the purple one. because there's a microphone and I don't want to record my horrible singing voice, but I'd love to sing with you, sorry. 
Um, so now I'm going to tell you a story with the help of my actors. Many years ago, according to the stories told by the people of ancient Greece, there lived two brothers, Prometheus, whose name means forethought, and Epimetheus, whose name means afterthought. The two brothers were given the job of populating the earth with animals and people. Prometheus was very organized, and Epimetheus <laughs> was foolish and distracted and finished up all of the creative energy of the gods before humans could be finished. So instead of having a nice thick fur or some water waterproof feathers, humans were naked, and so they were cold, cold, and helpless. <laughs> to make up for this disaster, Prometheus set out to ask Zeus, the king of the gods, to grant humans fire so they could warm themselves and cook their food. I will not, said Zeus. Not one spark will I share with them, for if humans had fire, they might become strong and wise, and after a while they would drive us out of our kingdom. Besides, fire is a dangerous tool, and they are too ignorant to be trusted with it. Prometheus didn't like this answer. You can sit, Zeus. So, Prometheus didn't like this answer. Humanity shall have fire, he said. So he took a, a fennel seed, which we don't have, and he snuck quietly behind Zeus's back. And he stole a tiny spark from Zeus's lightning bolt. And without telling him and hiding from him, he took it to the humans. And he gave them fire. Um, and he showed them how to warm themselves and how to light it and to use it to cook their food. People gathered around the fire and were warm and happy. They began to tell stories and soon they were planning new things, building houses and cities. When Zeus found out, that Prometheus, what Prometheus had done, he became angry. And he ordered that Prometheus be chained to the side of a mountain, we'll put you here, sorry, uh, to suffer there for all eternity. Um, <laughs> sorry, um, and so he sent an eagle to come and each day the eagle would eat out the liver of poor Prometheus and then the next day it would grow back. Now for ancient Greeks the liver was the site of emotions so the liver would be eaten up. Now with fire get humans gained the power of forethought and afterthought. They built the world as we know it today, but they were not always careful with fire and with the other creatures inhabiting the planet. With the power of reason, they drove off the gods of the Olympus completely and many other gods as well, until the flying, what is it? Flying rainbow unitarian unicorn. <laughs> helped people find their individual ways back to whatever gods they needed and they all worshiped together. 
They learned to let go into their joy without ever being told they were too happy or too happy clappy. <laughs> the end. So as the children go away, we'll sing, like the Rosalind Hill Unitarian Chapel does this. They sing this hymn, but I don't, what is it? 45. 45. So, but just a short version of it. Is it? Okay. Yeah. So, this one I can sing. So it goes, go now in peace. You probably all know it, but <laughs> anyone who doesn't. And you can go, kids, and have your mud, mud adventure. Thank you. Thank you, sir. take a few moments at the start of our day to gather in prayer and meditation. Whether you are feeling ready to go or not at all, tired and uncomfortable or calm and full of expectation for the day, take a moment to breathe and come into this space. This space made sacred by our bodies. Take three long, even breaths from the belly, through the nose and out your mouth. This body, breathing here, is the only one you have. Take a moment to visualize as many automatic functions that are taking place within you right now. Your heart pumping, your skin enveloping and protecting the whole of you, your ears transforming the vibrations of my voice into discernible signals for your brain, your lungs breathing oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide. hours and days, may we reach out to each other with our entire selves, so that each may find what they most need within themselves and from this summer school community. Be open, be ready to let go of your thinking self and to let go into whatever labyrinth you need. Plagiarizing Joseph Campbell, for where you expect to find an abomination, you shall find a god. Where you expect to travel outward, you shall come to the center of your own existence. And where you think you are alone, you shall be with all the world. So let's sing together another hymn, 21, Come and Find a Quiet Center. And it, if you can stand, but it's up to you, whatever feels right. 
I might just turn my thing off and then I have to have a mask that I can't take off, but it's invisible because it's here. When I was nine years old, I was shown an x-ray of my skull. I don't think that the dentist or my parents thought this would be a strange thing to do, but it triggered what I think was my first anxiety disorder. I was seized by obsessive intrusive thoughts about skeletons and had ter terrible recurring nightmares about them. They would come to me when I didn't want them. What most frightened me about my own skull was that it smiled all the time, whether I was happy or sad. It was always grinning creepily behind my face. And worst of all, what scared me was that the skull was me, and when I died, it would become visible. I tortured myself with the forethought of my own death and with the awareness that death was always within me, grinning and waiting. This was not a good thought or a good story, but I told it to myself obsessively. Now that I'm older, I don't fight the skull in my head quite so much anymore. I tell myself it's a beautiful memento mori and a reminder that we are made of carbon, that under our tissues and nerves and skin is something hard that keeps us together, the last bit of what we imagine to be us, to crumble if we get buried in the ground. I have a mild skeleton phobia, but I no longer fear my own, 
partially because of my spiritual journey, which has been a deeply physical journey. And, it, and because this journey is more interested in something beyond me and my bones. And even the grin, the creepy smile, is slowly turning into a lesson. A lesson to keep things light and merry, but we'll get onto that later. We are here to talk about our bodies, and I want to talk about our minds as bodily things. I have, over the years, suffered from a variety of mental health problems, from panic attacks to anxiety to postpartum depression. At times, my mind has felt like a cage, keeping me in a loop of thought from which I could not escape. When the summer school asked us to reflect about embodiment and the specific ways our embodied experiences have shaped our theological understanding, I felt I had to try to tackle the there, there space that I think we go to with our whole selves when we're able to let go of our self-conscious mind. In recent years, I've discovered meditation, and at Lewisham Unity and participating in the Unitarian movement, I, ex I have experienced in the body powerful moments of pure joy and connection that have given me a glimpse of the experience of what religious people must call faith. Faith is embodied, and I believe, it, I believe the feeling of faith emerges in a very particular state that involves shutting down forethought and afterthought. For me, it is about reaching out to the mystery beyond conscious thought. It's about seeking out new forms of consciousness. Faith may also free us from the mind traps that keep us from experiencing joy in ordinary life. Anxiety and depression involve a pathological tendency to tell destructive stories about the future and about the past. I can really identify with Mark Twain's famous quote in which he said, I am an old man, and I have experienced many misfortunes, most of which have never happened. <laughs> I am sadly familiar also with what Wendell Berry calls the forethought of grief, and I am a master at ruining my present by both the forethought and the afterthought of grief. <laughs> this, like Prometheus's punishment on the rock, is a curse I carry with me via my blood from generations of depressed and anxious people in my lineage beginning with my, my father, who is bipolar. But how do I separate this form of destructive thinking, which probably has biochemical origins within my laughing skull, from me? And is it just me, or are most human beings at least somewhat plagued by the curse of too much forethought and afterthought? And aren't the thoughts that we think um, when we're engaged in forethought and afterthought just imaginings, stories we tell ourselves, illusions? The Buddhists see this attachment to thought as the cause of our suffering and describe us as condemned to live in this continuous torture that derives from our illusions. Psychoanalysts can also testify to the ways the stories we tell ourselves can keep us stuck, unable to move and to enjoy any sense of our present. There is more. When we're busy conjuring up scenarios in our mind, taking us to other places and other times, we distract ourselves from the reality before us. <coughs> Neuroscientists are beginning to identify the ways in which our default mode network, the, brain, the part in our brains that we think is telling us the story of who we are, the narrator in our minds, but it's also the part of the brain that makes instantaneous decisions for us, limits our capacity to truly experience reality. Our brains, in fact, 
efficiently, and we could also say lazily, make predictions about everything we see and experience, linking these experiences back to familiar ground. For example, when we travel to a new place, our first three days in the new environment are rich and exciting and intense, and the second half of our holiday tends to fly by as an unknown environments are quickly made familiar and as we begin to anticipate all the things we'll be doing when our holidays are over. Prometheus and Epimetheus, forethought and afterthought, create our world, but this world is also an illusion, a dream, and often a lie. It is our default mode networks that make us racists and sexists and binary thinkers because it is easier for our brain to link what is before us to a story we have already absorbed than to encounter reality fresh all the time. I just need some water because my, my voice is going. <coughs> so, to the lie. The ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus was misquoted by Plato as saying that you cannot bathe twice in the same river. That's a misquote, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> the quote, <laughs> because tapantarei, everything flows, everything changes. We, just like the river, are in constant flux and transformation. We, just like the river, are not made up of the same matter. In 500 BC, Heraclitus was onto something profound. Our cells are constantly dying and being replaced. They come together to form the same organism, but at any time, we will never be made up of the same exact cells. Rivers and cities and the entire world function in that way too. Everything changes, and yet we cling to the story that people and rivers are one thing that can indeed meet many times. Tapantare is true of everything and everyone. We are aging from the moment we are born. We're always dying. And if we put our feet in a flowing river, neither the water that touches our feet nor our feet will ever be the same. But our language keeps these two things together, our idea about it. It is the words we and river that makes those two ever-changing entities into things. We're constantly fixing ourselves and reality with language, with stories. We're ever seduced by them and they make us. And the greatest story that we're continuously telling ourselves is the story of the self as a coherent, heroic entity. We need this story, as it gives us a sense of control. We want to believe that our journeys are clear and linear. We're born, we grow, things happen to us, we're transformed, we remember reality, we age and we die. But the hero on the journey is not a singular thing, and our memories are always changing. When we think about embodiment, we first need to get over the fact that our bodies are stories too, and that the selves that supposedly move them around are not coherent singular entities, but rather more like the moving shape of a swarm of monarch butterflies or a murmuration of starlings. We're made of atoms and cells, neurological pathways and hormones, and they're constantly made and unmade by our exchanges with the world, by our encounters with everything. The poet David White calls this the conversational nature of reality. Everything we experience is an encounter. And as we encounter everything, we are transformed and we transform. It's an infinite conversation. 
He describes the encounter between warm water and cold in the Galapagos Islands as triggering a conversation between the birds and the water and the infinite sea creatures that meet in that space. Human brains have found efficient solutions to make sense of the complexity of our physical encounters with the world. Our ego selves tell us a narrative about our continuous encounters with reality, but this narrative only partially covers our experience. Our talking minds, our default mode networks, our Prometheus selves are sometimes hindrances rather than aids in grasping our sense of place within the extended universe. There may be a deeper reality we are missing. So let me explain this with a poem that I found by chance on the underground while I was mulling this talk over. <laughs> the meaning of existence. Everything except language knows the meaning of existence. Trees, planets, rivers, time know nothing else. They express it moment by moment as the universe. Even this fool of a body lives it in part and would have full dignity within it but for the ignorant freedom of my talking mind. Expressing the meaning of existence moment by moment as the universe. Expressing the meaning of us, or perhaps expressing the divine moment by moment as the universe. How different that is from the narrated voiceover we offer ourselves. How different that expression of the universe is from the ignorant freedom of our talking mind. The aggression in that sentence, ignorant, is perhaps unfair to our talking mind, which after all helps us get a lot done on a daily basis, has helped billions of us survive on this planet, and is such a seductive version of ourselves. But as someone who suffers from anxiety and depression, quieting my talking mind is probably the biggest existential struggle I face, and is often an obstacle to a satisfactory spiritual life. So what am I saying and what does this have to do with embodiment? So I'm arguing that the selves that we imagine are experiencing the world as separate and contained by our bodies are real as much as any mental story is. Those selves we are taught to think of as I and me are ever-changing, constantly transformed by the physical reality they experience as encounters. Encounters with physical sensation. I, I think I need to explain this idea of encounter. So, Think about us today. So you get up, you walk into a room, the room smells like something, there are people, you encounter a person, you have a thought, the thought takes you to a memory, the memory moves you around. All of these are encounters and we encounter each other in this sort of way. But there's a combination of deep encounters and conscious encounters and, and it's all part of it. So we have talking minds that serve us well in everyday life, but these talking minds may also be barriers to a full experience of reality. Spir spiritual practice may allow us glimpses of the meaning of existence beyond the talking mind. Now, I don't want to do a duality thing going here. Yesterday we talked about this quite a lot. I'm not saying talking mind bad, deep, meaningful thing, good. But that, <laughs> I'm just saying there's something beyond that we're not quite grasping, and that some of it is because of our bodies, because of the way our brains are, are networked, and because of the limitations of the human mind, really. So we can feel this other forgotten reality when we're silent, when we pray, when we have good sex, when we come together with intention, when we listen carefully. 
I was complaining to a friend about the way we tell ourselves stories all the time and that these stories fix reality for us so that we don't experience it fully. And my friend smiled at me and she said, yes, but on a good day, the world is telling you your story. So have you heard that? Have you heard your story told to you by trees or stars? Have you heard it in the silence of your meditation or while singing in your congregation, while loving your partners? Now let's sing a, sing a hymn together and try to listen. So hymn 147, Spirit of Earth, Ruth, Sown and Tree. And if you can, if you can stand. of religious experience said that our consciousness is but one type of consciousness whilst all about us parted from it by the filmiest of screens there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different these other states of consciousness 
forbid a premature closing of our accounts with reality. Hmm. <laughs> I used to think that religious people were stupid. And I say this with embarrassment and shame at my close-mindedness. I was a materialist and an atheist, and I firmly believe that when you're dead, you're dead, and there's nothing beyond what the eye can see. And then I happened to take magic mushrooms on a visit to Amsterdam with my friend. <laughs> so for five hours, I lay in my dingy hotel room, and it really was an uninspiring one. There were no mandalas, no nice things, nothing. Just a disgusting room. But I was observing the most beautiful landscapes and patterns in the wallpaper that I was around me, and this rough wool hotel blanket. And singing and giggling for hours, I came to a point in my trip where I experienced a profound feeling that there is no past, present, and future, and that what my two eyes ordinarily see is not the reality that is actually out there. And I had a similar experience when I was putting bee glasses once on at a museum, a science museum. I don't know if you've ever done it, but basically bees, if you look at flowers, what we see as white flowers are suddenly these outstanding flowers. So this con other consciousness was already sort of familiar, but this really was a different kind of consciousness that I experienced on magic mushrooms. <laughs> I felt as though a veil had been lifted, and I was filled with a new sense of mystery and curiosity for the realm beyond my physical understanding. I became agnostic and then a Unitarian. <laughs> I had experienced in a physical way what I can only describe very stupidly as an entirely different form of consciousness. One where I was not in control, where the talking mind was quiet, while another part of the mind experienced ordinary, the ordinary reality around me in a different light. Now, Michael Pollan, maybe some of you have heard of him, um, has written a wonderful book called How to Change Your Mind, what the science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. So new studies look at brain scans of people who have ingested psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, and they found that the default mode network of the brain, the site of the voice that narrates experience, appears to be shut down. So psilocybin, with the ego voice shut down, activates part of the brain usually inactive, creating new neuronal pathways where, different, where a different kind of conscious self experiences reality. Now, it's, so it's very different from being drunk where you sort of shut down your mind. It, it activates the brain in some ways. These new pathways seem to leave lasting marks on the brains of those <laughs> on these substances and may explain why so many report a sense of oneness, belonging, and timelessness as a new truth that they remember even after the effects of the drug are over. Now, scans of people on psilocybin share this shutting down of the default mode network of the brain with the brains of religious people who have been fasting, monks who meditate many hours a day, and infants under the age of 10 months. In other words, mind-altering drugs of that type are shortcuts to the type of religious experience, mystical experience, that can only be achieved through intense physical practice or that were second nature to us before we began to speak. The feelings of joy and hope and coming home to reality that these mystical experiences offer, not all psilocybin trips are mystical, but if you have one, then that's what happens. Um, so these experiences, this feeling of joy, whether it's artificially induced and triggered by practice, 
are physically traceable and deeply bodily. So you can actually scan this particular way of activating the brain. In Plato's Symposium, Aristophanes tells the story of how we used to be whole and a jealous Zeus came and cut us in half. We owe a lot of Western civilization's binary thinking to this myth. This story was meant to explain in a very limited binary way human desire as a quest for our other half. But today I think this story, I think of this story in a different way. I think it captures the moment of separation when we stopped being one with the universe. This is a moment in evolution which Yuval Noah Harari describes very well in his book about our species, Sapiens. So he talks about this particular time. And our split in this platonic sense happened when our talking minds evolved as a technology of survival and we began to learn the world rather than to experience it fully. Babies until 10 months don't experience their own bodies as separate from those of their mothers and don't see themselves as other to the universe. But what if the useful narrative of the self we learn as infants were just a story we tell ourselves to survive and to plan more efficiently? And what if our entire religious practice were really a technology to snatch glimpses of that other pre-linguistic experience of wholeness and belonging that we have unlearned? In the space beyond the talking mind, I have glimpsed sometimes a sense of an eternal coming home, a wholeness outside of me, a we-ness to the cosmos, which appears to be always there, but that I can only attempt to reach on very rare occasions. I suspect that this experience that I'm trying to describe, which is so profound for me, but can so easily sound banal, is something that some of you have also shared. Have you had this feeling of the we-ness of the cosmos? Can you tell me in what kind of physical context, just sort of shout them out, sort of, about like, Singing. Mountain top. I'm sorry? Mountain top. Mountain top. Starlit night. Starlit night. Yeah. Other prayer? When truly listening to a person, you just connect. Yes. On a visual sense, actually, sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and a sensual sense. If on a few occasions in my life, when someone's been speaking, I'm really connected. Everything else has just disappeared almost. It's mm -hmm. been incredible, actually. Mm -hmm. Swimming in an empty pool. Swimming in an empty pool. <laughs> Other? Walking an ancient path. Walking an ancient path. Other ones? In a forest? I'm going to say beside an ocean because that's not been said yet. But it yes. is, it's also, I've experienced that when, when emotion, grief particularly yeah. for me, yeah. has just overwhelmed me, then there is something else yeah. that steps in mm. uh, to protect, to comfort, to heal, to hold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. And so this is not just, when you talk about it, it can sound so, yeah. even just saying it out loud, a swim in an empty pool, uh -huh. swim in an empty pool, but actually a swim in an empty pool mm -hmm. for you, yeah. it has that resonance, something has happened. Mm -hmm. um, with your cat Daisy. With your cat Daisy. I've had experience of, you know, of having quite intense physical pain and then the pain goes. And the pain goes. And then, uh, Everything changes yeah. colour. Yeah. Child labour. <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> Summer school, the last time I was here, had the same effect on me as psilocybin in the Amsterdam. <laughs> 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 I'm not joking. So it's true. It's true. So after a week of sharing stories, eating together, chanting, meditating, singing, my sense of reality was enhanced and heightened. 
The flowers in that garden are beautiful, but by the end of the week, they appear to be more alive than any flower I had ever set eyes on. So as part of our engagement group, we were asked to go outside and connect to nature in silence. And I, initially I thought, what a cop out, 20 minutes of this, I'm not gonna do <laughs> And then I, I lay down and those trees out there started to wow. And I just felt so held and received by the world. The ground was receiving me, not as Eleanor, but as part of itself. <coughs> These, they were rustling, and I had this sense of eternal belonging, a sense of life continuing beyond me, but also an immense sense of oneness with everything. At the core of both the magic mushroom experience and summer school is the dissolution of the conscious sense of self. <laughs> it's kind of violently done here, but it, it does work. In both circumstances, the experience is about letting go and about opening up to a sense of awe. Whether there's a physiological explanation to this feeling or whether it is truly an opening up to a universal truth, which so many mystical experiences seem to promise, doesn't actually matter. Like the illusion of the self, these powerful experiences of beauty and awe are real to those living them. They're etched in the heart and in the body, and in my case, they're bodily explanations of the faith I so readily belittled in others. I have come to see that feeling of letting go into the dissolution of the self as the experience of what some people call God. God not as an abstract idea of a sentient being, but God as verb, as something that happens and something that we long to join in with. The tension between God as a thing and God as a verb is also implicit in our experience of the self as a unified character that consciously does things. So let me just break this down. So God, there's God, the God, or then there's God as verb. And then there's the unified self as a character that consciously does things. And then there's the sense of ourself as happening in conversation with the world. We happen, and when we let go into that special quality of being alive, into what David White calls attentive presence, the divine happens also. But I have found that attentive presence in the world is really not easy, especially for me, I just, I can't do it all the time. Properly letting go into spaces of eternal connection <coughs> requires a special kind of courage, but also a lightness, a merry mischievous quality that needs to be cultivated and that I can't do alone. It can happen to me, but if I want to nurture it, it needs to be sort of done together. So I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, the skulls grinning in our heads, that they were going to be reminders to take things merry. <laughs> but what if instead of frightening monsters, those grinning skulls are reminders to smile, reminders to laugh at ourselves, um, the Zen master, social activist, and clown, Danny Glassman, describes this special attitude that we need to approach our lives as well as our religious practice in a productive way. And he finds important lessons in the children's song, Row Your Boat. <coughs> so it contains really key lessons, sim similar to those by, of Heraclitus. So he said, let's just go over it. I know we, we all know this song. Our, our immediate brain reaction is, but listen to it. So row, row your boat. You have only one. Gently down the stream. Gently is the important lesson. You must do it kindly and patiently. And don't try to force things or you will get stuck. 
and do this merrily, merrily, as this special quality of joy you get when you let go into your experience of life makes it so much more precious. Especially since life is but a dream, a story, a myth we tell ourselves for a time until we get flushed down into the eternal cosmos or something like that. So, Row Your Boat is just a trite song if you sing it alone. But let's see what happens if we sing it together in four parts. Okay. So, maybe this part can uh, start. Do you feel like it? So, it's up to Winnie. And then, second part can be, or no, Winnie and Sarah and Trisha that way. And then second part will be here. Cody, I need your help because music is not my forte. Um, then here, up to Jackie and Gabby. Gabby. And, Mar and then Mark and you guys the fourth one. Is that OK? OK. Let's try it. it in a different kind of way. This welcoming, this if we, we're welcoming the song into ourselves, we're welcoming each other into the song. This hospitality, this making ourselves where a, pla a place where the boat can flow, where we can flow and pass, is why summer school is so precious. If we could live each day like this. When I was a little girl growing up in a small town in Italy, I would often stumble upon a tiny blue flower called gli occhi della Madonna, the eyes of the Madonna. The five-petaled flower probably got its name for the particular shade of blue that was used for painting the Virgin Mary's eyes and also her cape. But I was convinced that the Madonna could see through the small flowers. These flowers were very common in the spring and summer, and I believed that the Madonna had a plant superpower which imposed a sort of ever-present bio-surveillance that could catch me in sin, <laughs> perhaps kicking my brother or using foul language. In my overly literal understanding of the flower's name, I caught on to something that speaks to my theological understanding today. 
I have come to believe that we, in the ever-changing monarch butterfly bodily way I've been describing so far, and everyone else, and every other living thing on this planet, are indeed the eyes of the divine, or of the cosmos, or the Madonna, or whatever else you want to call it. And eyes not as mechanical organs of sight, but as places of opening and encounter. Alan Watts described this as humanity flowering. He said, just as the flower is a flowering in, of the field, I feel myself as a peopling of the whole universe. In other words, I seem, like everything else, to be a center, a sort of vortex at which the whole energy of the universe realizes itself, comes alive. A sort of aperture through which the whole universe is conscious of itself. The Polish Booker Prize winner Olga Tukakusz sees um, sees us almost as signals in a universal machine. She writes, We are the individual nerve impulses of the world, fraction of an instance, barely that part of it that permits the change from plus to minus, or maybe the other way around, and keeps everything in constant flux. This is from her book, Flights. It is when we're truly alive to ourselves that we can activate others, switch on the broader circuit of the world, and move it towards beauty and love and transcendence. We each are just one nerve impulse of the world, but what we do with that impulse when we come together, when we're open rather than closed, when we're fired up, is what I believe we are here for. There is no unified self. We happen. David White says, we change the world by meeting it and are changed through our attentive presence. In these special encounters, we become the eyes of the universe, receptors from which the universe can, gains consciousness of itself. Ourselves dissolve, and we experience a sense of a return to the wholeness of the universe. This is my opinion. Spiritual practices from all over the world aim to help in that process of letting go of the self into the collective experience of happening. I resist this letting go. I tell myself it's silly or it's terrifying. I sabotage my sense of belonging or I just don't make any time for it. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke has a beautiful poem that many of you may know called Go to the Limits of Your Longing, in which he imagines the voice of God telling us as he makes us, go to the limits of your longing, embody me, Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. He writes that nearby is a country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. To embody the divine is to go to the limits of our longing. To go where we don't know and never be the same. Sufi master L. Von Lee wrote that the world is not a problem to be solved. It is a living being to which we belong. The world is part of our own self, and we are part of its suffering and wholeness. Until we let go of our image of separateness, there can be no healing. And the deepest part of our separateness from creation lies in our forgetfulness, forgetfulness of its sacred nature, which is also our sacred nature. Do I need to read that quote again? I'm sorry, I didn't give you a printout. Do you want it again? Okay, so she says, 
The world is not a problem to be solved. It is a living being to which we belong. The world is part of our own self, and we are part of its suffering and wholeness. Until we let go of our image of separateness, there can be no healing. And the deepest part of our separateness from creation lies in our forgetfulness of its sacred nature, which is also our sacred nature. So perhaps this is a bit, okay. Summer school teaches us how to acknowledge and bless our sacred nature as communal. It teaches us to embody the divine by flaring up like flames, making big shadows it can move in. It allows us for a time to silence our lazy egos and let go into ex experience by sharing physically the awe and mystery that togetherness helps fire up. Tracy Cochran reminds us that being nobody is not deadness. It is awakening to the flow of life. May our awakening here at summer school be gentle, and may we flow together merrily, merrily, merrily. <laughs> so let's sing our final hymn, 35, Find a Stillness. uncomfortable sit down um, and if you if you wish to close your eyes but just if we can be quiet together
Thank you. Um, I want to finish with some words by... Oh, you can sit down. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not used to this commanding. Um, I'm going to finish with words from Padrag... I can't say. Padraig Otuama. I'm disrespecting his name. He's a Northern Irish activist. Prayer, like poetry, like breath, like our names, has a fundamental rhythm in our bodies. So let us pick up the stones over which we stumble, friends, and build altars. Let us listen to the sound of breath in our bodies. Let us listen to the sound of our own voices, of our own names, of our own fears. Let's claw ourselves out from the graves we've dug. Let's lick the earth from our fingers. Let us look up and out and around. The world is big and wi wide and wild and wonderful and wicked. And our lives are murky, magnificent, malleable, and full of meaning. Oremos, let us pray. Sing out, sing out, and if you want to be free, be free. Cause there's a million things to be, you know that there are. And if you want to live high, live high, and if you want to live low, live low. Cause there's a million ways to go. Thank you.